Hello, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one, hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this musical little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Ben McConkie. Now, if you know Ben like I know Ben, then you'll know him as that guy who's the MC at the hall for every event these days that raises money for one reason or another. Well, today we're going to get to find out a lot more about Ben. In this interview, we talked about music, we talked about politics, and we talked about Ben's involvement with the First Nations community that seems to have had a profound impact on his life. We also had a beer while we were doing this interview and a lot of laughs, and I edited a bunch of stuff out of this interview, but I kept a lot of stuff in that I normally would have edited out from a typical interview, except I thought it was just too darn funny to take out. So (laughs) I hope you enjoy this interview. I'm pretty sure you will. It's pretty entertaining because that's what Ben is. He's pretty entertaining. So we'll see you on the other side. And here is my interview with Ben McConkie. Ben, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to be here, Chris. Thank you for having me in this. I don't think people understand who are listening where the people are who get interviewed for this program. And I'm in a basement that's about minus 23. It's cold. Yeah. Very cold. Um, there's a lava lamp that's very sad. It's not plugged in. It's just sitting there. It's broken. Like, like it, oh, it's broken. It's a broken lava lamp. Oh, no. <laughs> it's so sad. Like, why don't, why isn't it dealt with? It should be dealt with immediately. Um, there's random artwork. There's a couch. But overall, it's kind of got a CIA interrogation vibe with the one lamp and the cold, dead stare of Chris Wakaluk looking at me. <laughs> um, but I'm happy to be here, Christopher. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming in. It's a, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. Seriously. Thank you. And let's get to the... Why tradition. are you being so polite to me? What do you mean, why am I being so polite? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's really nice to have you here. Well, it is. It, it is. is. Uh, the audience should recognize that you and I are... Uh, I am a frequent winner of disc golf against you on the disc golf course. And we have a friendship that goes back four years. You've tolerated me? About that time, yeah. Okay. And so it's weird when you ask me questions about myself. Like, you must know the answers. But I'm, I'm realizing that maybe tonight you're actually going to hear them for the first time because we talk about my life on the disc golf course. But you aren't probably listening like because you're, you, you're good at going, yeah. I think that, I think you're listening. That's your me. insecurity talking. I'm totally yeah, listening to you. I think you're just trying to dial it in and win. Anyways, so I'm just trying to give the audience some background. Good. We talk. Well, I appreciate that. Actually, do you want to just come into the mic just a little oh, bit closer? Not You're close l- enough. But that's that's better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you had the headphones, you'd be able to hear that. Oh, jeez. I'll put you, the you have to put on. the headphones just, on. When you hear your no, voice, it's you like, oh, who okay. is this person? We're going to record for an hour and 45 minutes at this okay, rate for yeah. sure. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Okay, let's get to do it. Do you want, if you don't want to wear the headphones, you don't have to. No, I like them. You do? Yeah. They, they don't have very much padding. Yeah. It's kind of one of those paddingless. I, I like them, but I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to say after I like them is I'm going to make a complaint about them. What's the complaint? They don't have much padding. No. <laughs> that was, that was not a complaint. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares, unfortunately. <laughs> We've probably lost all our viewers by our viewers, listeners by now. Luckily, we're not going out live. And, well, the, uh, the first traditional question we always get to on this program is what brought you to Pender Island? 
Well, I'm lucky. I mean, I don't know how much of this is based on historical evidence, but I've been told by my family and it's worked out because I, you know, my, my family's actually, I have three great grandparents buried at the Pender Cemetery. And then I have five members of my family uh, buried there as well from my, I guess my mom's side. So my family goes back a long ways on Pender Island. It's been in my family since I guess eight, the twenties I've told. I don't actually know that's true, but it's sort of a, a story I'm told from my parents and they've backed it up. The earliest memories of Pender Island are when I was a kid and just kind of playing on the water and going out in the boat. And I was lucky because my parents bought a property in the 70s here when they were giving land away for like 30 grand or whatever. He was like, here's some land. <laughs> you know, they used to give uh, Magic Lake Estates. It was like seven grand for two acres on the water or whatever, you know, and uh, my parents were smart. My dad bought a place on Pender. Uh, and then they were kind of weekend warriors, right? So they plugged away and they, you know, my dad basically built a shack. He actually then built a, a like a full on structure of the house, um, which was uh, utilized by framers from his uh, high school, um, old high school teachers shop class. He brought them over and my mom would cook for them. And I have a memory of being like five years old. And mom's like, we're going over to Pender and we're leaving Matt and Meg, my older brother and sister behind. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Pender with mom. I didn't realize it, but mom was making meals for about 15 grade 11 or 12 students that were framing it. So my dad was smart. Like he went and he came over and he, he's like, I, I read a book. That's how I'm like, dad, how'd you figure this out? He's an airline pilot, right? How'd you figure it? He's like, I just read a book. People just don't read books these days. I'm like, did you wire your house? Like, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> there's some parts of the house where when you turn the on switch on, it turns the light off kind of thing. But overall, the, the house is awesome. And then on the finishing things, my dad got a professional carpenter to help him out. And so we just sort of plugged along. And I just have memories of just coming over from Fort Langley, where I grew up, and just hanging out as a kid. And so my parents, I was really lucky. I was really privileged because... You know, my parents had a place in Fort Langley and then they, they were smart and they bought land and then slowly built up a house over a couple decades. And now I just considered Pender to be home. Eventually in grade 12, my mom and my dad, they were like, okay, we're piecing out of the lower mainland. We've had enough of this place. And my dad could commute to the airport. So they just left Fort Langley and Walnut Grove and they went and made Pender their permanent home. So essentially, Pender became my home by proxy because when I'd go home and visit, mom and dad were on Pender. And that was since, you know, the late 90s. Pender's just always been home. And then I made a foolish decision, um, which turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. For some reason, I was compelled to go to Toronto. And I went there for 10 years and it was actually incredible. I got to play with some of the best musicians in the world and meet some of the best musicians in the world and hang out and make so many friends but like really what was going on was when the sun would set in Toronto, I was always thinking about how the sun was still up on Pender. I had an apartment, you know, we, we looked towards the sunset at night and I was always thinking, man, it's up in Pender. The sun's still up. And I'd go on Google Earth and like look at pictures of Pender. And anytime I saw a Facebook picture or something of Pender or some, the green trees, I was like, ah, you know, not that Toronto's not amazing. Toronto, actually, I'm one of the few people that really think Toronto's awesome, except for their hockey team. I mean, I'm totally covering over a whole bunch of stuff, but I just felt completely compelled to move back to Pender. I just didn't, it didn't feel right. There was just something, when you're in Ontario, there's just different gas stations and the bus is colored different and 
it's like 30 degrees and no 100% humidity in the summer and it's minus 30 in the winter and you know like, like here it's it's cold in the winter for sure but it's just kind of like this gray damp that I like for some reason like I just like the climate here and I also most importantly I was really lucky because I had kids uh, in Toronto I have uh, my daughter Marika who's 10 and I have my boys Max and Noah who are turning 8 on October 21st and I really wanted them to experience Pender. That that was like the first thing when I started seeing them crawling and stuff and thinking, how are they, how on earth, if they're living in Toronto, are they going to get to know Pender except for a visit once a year? You know, because it can be expensive, right? To fly and just bringing three kids on the airplane and maybe we could do two times a year. Like I wanted them to experience it the whole time. And so I had an offer of a job in Oakville, because I was studying music at the time, and I was offered a job at a private school teaching for like rich kids. You know, I could teach like rich private school kids, grade five, six, seven band, and it paid very well. And I was like, man, I'm going to commute to Oakville. Wait, how far was that? From and it's like an hour and tra- on the 403, like the worst highway, the highway from Toronto to Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. Heard like, of it. Never it's heard. just yeah. so, it's just like... How many humans are there on the earth when you're driving it the whole time? It's like, oh my gosh, there's so many cars, all these people. It was, it's crazy. So I was like, forget it. So I said to Shannon, my kid's mom, uh, I said to her, let's get the hell out of here. Let's make a move and let's go. Let's buy a place in uh, on Pender Island. I just, I want to go back. I don't have, I don't know idea. I've said like, I'm a lawns. I don't know what I'll do, but I'm just going to do it. My kids need to go there. I felt compelled to go there. And looking back, and I, I really, like, Shannon was super supportive. Looking back, it was really impulsive to do that. Just kind of like 10 years in Toronto. Shannon's family is in Ontario. So we were leaving her family with our kids. And it was a big decision. We And Shannon was just like, let's do it. You know? Had and, Shannon been here before? Oh, yeah, yeah. She'd been, because, you know, we got married on Pender Island. Okay. In 2005. Yeah, and so we put an offer on a house, and we it was accepted. You know, we lowballed it. In fact, the house was we just got a really good deal on it. So we just said, let's take this opportunity, and and we moved to Pender Island, and it's been the best decision I've ever made. You wow! Know? I went as a result of being on Pender. I mean, as <laughs> much as you know, a lot of changes happened, and that's what's cool about your podcast. You hear those stories of those people that you know they. They change a lot when they come to Pender and they get to know themselves a lot better. That totally happened to me. So my life totally changed when I moved to Pender. And uh, yeah, it's been crazy. Like it's been, it's been fascinating to go from downtown Toronto, High Park, to taking the subway all the time to Pender Island all of a sudden. It was quite a shift, but it felt super right. It's interesting. You, know. you, you mentioned two things that I, I've heard numerous times about uh, this passion for the island that people have this burning desire to come live here. And then also you just mentioned the change that occurs when people are on this island for a length of time. It seems like maybe it's because we're in a small community and we can just see it easier, the change in people's lives. But it seems like uh, passion and change are two facets of this island. But mm-hmm. let's just get into a little bit about when you did arrive here the offer got accepted on the house and you moved from Toronto. How did things uh, unfold for you and uh, how have things unfolded since? And what year was that in? Uh, this was 2014. Okay. Uh, or 20, Yeah, right on the beginning of 2014. Uh, then I, I guess what I would begin is a process of just a real sadness. Um, Shannon and I's uh, marriage actually 
um, we decided that it would be better if we were uh, living in separate uh, places. And it's really, it was a very, very difficult time and really sad. And I feel really lucky now because um, Shannon and I are really good friends and like best friends. We both live on Pender and um, we get along really awesome. And I love Shannon a lot. And I'm so happy that she is the mother of my kids. It's, I'm really, really lucky. But yeah, it was it was sad for me to go through that. Um, I kind of felt like I needed to then focus on the work that brought me to Pender, which was a change and also to explore music and my skills. So because I was going through a breakup, I was able, and I had more time all of a sudden, to be honest, I was able to start building up what I would say, working on the music community here on Pender. So I was able to invest in time going and getting to meet people, play music with them, organize open mics. Now I've started a record label here on Pender. I've been able to um, start fundraisers where we've raised like 25 grand for things like solar panels and um, the community hall generator. It's been my goal to kind of elevate the, the vibe of the music scene here on Pender Island. Because I think if you foster artists and musicians to succeed and do well, if you support it, you know, it's just a kind of a better place to live. Like it's way more interesting. There's a whole bunch of places in the country that there's a whole huge net worth of whatever, but you wouldn't want to live there. There's just a bunch of giant houses with gates. It's like, where do you go to hang out and get to know people? Like big deal. The richest communities are the ones that have musicians that are getting paid at the gigs and they're creating really good music. And artists that have, you know, shows that are selling lots of work and it's really high quality. So I, I kind of decided to make that happen um, as a result of coming to Pender. And it's been really cool. It was uh, totally unexpected, you know, seeing my, my friends, you know, like I'm a doctoral candidate, you know, to get a doctorate in music for the University of Toronto and blah, blah, blah. And to see what my friends are doing, my colleagues, you know, they're like teaching in cities and they have university jobs and stuff. And I run the Pender Island Youth Orchestra and I have, you know, the, the Pender Island band program that I run. I've directed the Pender Island Choir. I've directed the Pender Island Jazz Band. I have a, my own private music school where I, you know, I've had, you know, at one point I had about 22 students, 25 students just coming into my place. And the island has seen a need for music education and has seen for a need for a musician to come in and sort of let's go, let's get going here. And their groundwork was there uh, laid out by some, like a whole list of people, obviously that helped me to get this going. And then now you see a whole bunch of teachers here, Steph Jackson, and you see um, Sabrina and, uh, and you see um, Mary rare and you see Danny and his strings. And I mean, those are all, excellent music educators and they're all somewhat making a living teaching music either part-time or full-time and it's awesome it's a sign of a healthy island i think that's why pender is such an awesome place to live it's got this great vibe going on uh where the arts are starting to really take off so let me just ask a question about yeah. music because it seems as if it's at the epicenter of who you are and maybe close to that is humor as well too but <laughs> where was it that you first developed a passion for music uh, I got to say, I don't think I really had a passion for music at the beginning. And that's because I have a really strong memory of my mom coming in and telling me, Ben, you're taking piano lessons. And I totally remember this. I just went and I started crying. And I was like, no, 
adolescence. Well, how, how old were you? Like 16? I don't, you know, I don't remember, but it was the Fort Langley house. Like if my family's listening to this, it was the Fort Langley house and I was in the living room, the sunken living room, which means it was sometime after grade two, I think, or grade three. That's when we moved to that place. But I was choked. I was like, music lessons. This sucks. <laughs> I saw like, because uh, my, my father and my mom, uh, mother, my mom, uh, and my brother and my sister both studied music ahead of me because I was the baby. And, I, and it just looked like a, like they're working on stuff. It looks like work. Like I would walk into my parents' bedroom and my dad was playing the trumpet. And he looked like he was practicing stuff. But then he would kind of goof around with me and he'd start playing like Popeye. Like there, you know. And I was like, sweet. You know, and mom, she was uh, always singing every single song in the encyclopedia of Western music. Like I would be like, mom, I'm having a really rough day. She'd be like, Having a rough day. And it was like a Peter, Paul, and Mary song. <laughs> or you'd, you'd be like, Mom, what's for dinner? She'd be like, What's for dinner? What's for dinner? And it's like a Willie Nelson song. <laughs> like she, would, she has that skill. That's fantastic. And my dad is like, Mr. Was, came from a concert band, more of a classical tradition. So he's like the trumpet player that played all the record collection we have is like from Holst to Mahler and Beethoven and. Handle and all that uh, good stuff. He had, you know, all the CDs there. And my mom was like the folk collection kind of thing. And so my passion for music didn't happen because I realized I got to take piano lessons with Mrs. Greenwood, who was like an evangelical in the extreme. <laughs> and some of my favorite people are evangelicals as a side point. But uh, I would describe her as very. So let me put it this way. We would spend 15 minutes playing piano and 15 minutes talking about like how the the wrath of god is coming and you know you have to wow, not equal, sin and stuff equal and, time for both yeah it was, wow and at the time i was just listening i'm like okay cool you know as long as i'm executing whatever she's telling me which was basically learn to play the piano and execute royal conservatory stuff which is you look up at the piano and you look at the note and then you try and play it on the piano and then you get better at it blah 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 and then it got to a point where I was pretty good at piano and I watched a home video of me and I don't even really have a memory of playing piano as a kid, you know, playing conservatory because it was really intense and uh, you didn't want to make a mistake. I remembered with conservatory piano, a good performance was one I didn't screw up in. That was the vibe I was coming from, right? So in hindsight, it was great because it trained me technically to understand music. You know, I can read music and I can, uh, I'm technically proficient. And, but as far as the passion goes, I mean, I remember going for a grade six exam or grade five, I can't remember. And Mrs. Green was like, you need to get the gold medal. And I remember I got an 85 or an 84. I was just freaked out. And it, it was a silver medal. And she, she came in and, and she made me cry. Oh, no. And I was oh. like, 13 year old boy, right? I was like, forget this. <laughs> I am checking out. So I told mom, I'm not doing this anymore. And it was around that time that I remember my brother put on uh, a Duke Ellington record. And it just sounded like, like it was jazz. It was a jazz band, Duke Ellington, if you don't know, great famous American composer, kind of the godfather of jazz. Uh, and it sounded like these guys were having fun playing music, like totally clamming all over. Uh, Matt put on a Miles Davis record. He's like, look, look, Miles is playing. And Miles has every record. He f makes a mistake. Like he's soloing. Like it didn't matter. I thought that's, that is hip. I like that. So around grade six, I got a trumpet because it was grade six trumpet band. And then I was like, here we go. The trumpet was the instrument that really got me just loving music again. It was such a great, such a great instrument, the trumpet. 
especially for like a young teenage boy, you put on, you probably don't know who Maynard Ferguson is, but you put on Maynard Ferguson. It's like high note screeching trumpet. It's like, what? And then it's like disco grows. And you put that on your teenage boy. You're like, man, I can play really high on the trumpet. You try and play really high notes. Like it was really fun. Anyway, so I, I got my passion back for music through that experience, you know, and I went from one extreme to the other, basically learning yeah. jazz and learning classical trumpet. I really enjoyed it. So, so like yeah. it, went, it went from being taught in a super strict technical format to finding out that there's a different way to do it. And it's a little more freestyle and like more yeah, freedom. It's, and it's kind of like what I, when I teach my students now, I go, are you sure your piano is your voice? Like, I think it was great that I learned piano and I'm really grateful now that Mrs. Greenwood, although she was really, really intense and uh, did not make me feel good. I still learn technically about music, but you're finding your voice. Sometimes your voice isn't the first instrument you pick up or think you want to play. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, you need to like experiment, try different instruments. And although I still play lots of piano, playing trumpet when I was in high school and what ended up happening was I would uh, not, it wouldn't be, it wasn't as intense. Like it was, even though it was concert band music or I played orchestra trumpet music, I, I, I played a lot of jazz, but when I played orchestra and classical, more regimented stuff, I still was, it wasn't as intense as Mrs. Greenwood. Like it was Mr. Goddard and Mr. Sparks, like I sang in choirs and it wasn't as intense because you were in a group and the other kids were kind of screwing up and making mistakes and it wasn't a solo thing. And that's where I really found joy from playing with other members in a band i found that to be way better than on the piano that's my piano sound by the way <laughs> super piano <I'm> a musician <laughs> okay well so how did yeah. it go from there to you getting your master's in music and just basically um, almost it seems like dedicating bribery. your life to music bribery yeah let's hear it uh no i sadly no there was no bribery i wish it was that easy so then, but what happened was I learned so much music up to grade 12 that then I didn't, I decided not to go on to music school. I said, I need to learn something else. I need to take a break or something. I just felt either burnt out or whatever. Cause I was playing music at the, um, I went to this school in Fort Langley called the Langley Fine Arts School. And the Langley Fine Arts School was one of the first art schools of its kind in the lower mainland where you spend half your day doing your academics, the other half doing an art, whether it be writing or dance or drama or music. Or dance. And what well, that was awesome because I would just play music all day long from the morning. I, I was, there was days where I was at the, the school from 7 a.m. to 4.30 or 5 o'clock. And that was like two days a week because you're doing bands in the morning, choirs or bands in the afternoon, just doing music nonstop. So I stopped and I went to University of Victoria and I got a degree in um, a double major in political science and history. And that was awesome. Then I, I met Shannon. Shannon and I got married and then we moved to we made a decision to kind of move to Toronto after me kind of floundering in Vancouver, kind of floundering, majorly floundering in Vancouver, working at like Red Robin, <laughs> singing the birthday song. You were singing the birthday song? Oh, Red yeah. Robin? Oh, yeah. I did it really well, though. Like the manager, like, like I got good shifts because, you know, I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to sell out, I'm going to do it with some enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm going to sing the Red Robin song like, here we go, everybody. And I, I'd be like, I have your attention, please. You know, so I went from that to a master's degree. That's actually interesting. Well, I made a decision to follow my music that I'd taken a break from because it just didn't feel right. I wrote the LSAT, the law school application test twice. And I did like, I think it was 69th percentile or something like that. 
just not very good because I just was not into that. <laughs> like when I was studying for the test, which I should have been, I would go down to the UVic library and check out jazz CDs. And, you know, in hindsight, the best thing I ever did was not do well in the LSAT because I could have gone to law school. You know, my grades were pretty okay. My last three years, at least at UVic were pretty okay. But I was not interested in doing that. So I then read Robin floundering. Then Shannon going like, hey, you know, what about music? And Shannon was extraordinarily encouraging saying, it's just, you know, it's never felt right. You not playing music. And I would, I would still play my horn. In fact, I played a bit in the UVic big band. I wasn't very up to shape. It just wasn't very good. But I was still playing a bit. I was playing with hippies when we jam at, you know, acoustic hangs at UVic where there's like disc golf and quinoa salad and you're, you know, like chilling. I'd play my horn. They're like, whoa, horn. That's, that's the new thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, that's right. So I should make a change. So I put my laptop, no laptop. It was a PC, like the big cube ones. And I got my... The, you know, the microphones that are like the, that came, like the crappy foldy ones, oh, yeah, yeah, the totally. Logitech. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put that there. And then I didn't know any software on PCs, like how to run a re recording, but I, I hit like sound recorder on the PC. And then I put on a Jamie Abersold of the, uh, the jazz song, All the Things You Are. And I made an audition tape from, for Humber College. Humber College is one of the premier prestigious popular contemporary music schools in Canada produced some amazing musicians there. And I got in to the school and, I, and then Shannon's like, okay, let's go. I'm like, sweet. Shannon's family was out there. So we caught a plane and we took, moved to Toronto. And then I went to Humber College and I had a really, really amazing time there. Met some of the most fascinating, incredible, uh, incredibly talented and funny people ever. Musicians are the funniest people to hang out with. And young musicians who are aspiring and ambitious are just the most interesting people. And then what happened was I was doing well in all my grades because I had already gone to school. I'd been, done a degree. I just kept kind of, I went there originally to kind of go, okay, we'll see how it goes. And I did a year at Humber. And then I did another one and I just kept kind of going along just because I found it so interesting. I was doing the music studying that I should have done after <clears throat> I went to uh, grade 12 instead of going to do my political science degree. And yes, I know it sounds like I'm a professional student, but that's just the way it is. So then what happened was I got through my degree and I had really good grades. And I thought, well, what about doing a master's degree? Just because I fascinated by this band, the Boss Brass, which has turned into my dissertation for my doctorate. They were all over that at University of Toronto. And I, I think I became the first student from Humber College to get accepted to a master's degree program because they hadn't quite recognized Humber as a degree granting institution yet. I think that's changed. And I'm not actually sure if that's true, but I was one of the first uh, Humber students to go on and do a master's degree. And so, uh, and that's changed a lot. I have to actually check that out. I'm not quite sure. So anyways, so the point of the story is I got accepted to the master's degree and then I kept bamming along there. And I had Marika, my daughter, and then I got encouraged to do my doctorate. So I just kept going along there and <laughs> I didn't expect to go to school this long. And I'm almost ready to defend. I'm writing my, my dissertation for my doctorate now. I've been in school a long, long time. Mm. It's been crazy. 
It's too much. <laughs> well, even it, talking about it's like exhausting to think about it. It's it's interesting about how you've come to the position that you're at right now on this mm-hmm. island where I've seen from a bit of a distance because I'm not a musician, but I've seen what you've done on this island in terms of fostering music on the island. We touched on a little while ago. Did you ever imagine that this is where your life would take you to the place that you relatively grew up in or had like a passion for being in and then creating what you have on this island? Because to me, it seems like what you've done is that you really created something unique for yourself and you really, yeah, you just, you just really like manufactured a really interesting and I don't know, for lack of a better word, like important or necessary or unique role for yourself on the island where it seems like you're helping a lot of people in a lot of different ways. That's not intentional. Like I'm not consciously going, I'm going to go and make the scene and da, 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 da. Like I, I'm, I'm doing what I'm interested in doing, which is, uh, as you can tell from this podcast, I like communicating and I like talking about music and people have also been really encouraging. You know, Pender's a, it's a unique, weird place. The people that come here, they get it. They get that this place is awesome. They're kind of like looking around like, don't tell anybody. And what what I find uh, so inspiring about all the people that live here is that many of them have fascinating stories that doesn't come out until you, uh, well, you teach them music. What do you mean? So I didn't expect this part of my uh, life to happen in the sense of I start teaching music and you realize that everyone has some sort of hang up about music. They were either told you, you suck little Timmy, or um, that was not good enough. Grandma's disappointed or some teacher going, you're flat or some other person saying some negative comment like that wasn't very good, you know, and it sticks with people. Something about music, it just completely vibes them if you're not encouraged properly. So I notice when I teach adult students in particular, what'll happen is they'll, they'll all of a sudden um, just be like, I, I'm no good or some, some comment, some negativity will come out. You're like, okay, what are you talking about? Like, where does this come from? I just, I, I, I've never been good. I'm tone deaf or something like that. It's like, okay, well, and then you start asking questions and then you start realizing that it always comes back to someone was shitty to them, Hmm. you know, and I'll, I'll have people like two people a week crying, you know, after I'm teaching them music and it's been sort of this music therapy thing, but I'm not a music therapist, but I, I do want to uh, find out why, what it is that's holding you back from learning music. Why is it you can't just pick up the, the guitar and just start doing it? It's not a big deal. And so you're saying that like mostly what's happened, it's been an experience in the past, which seems to probably reflect the story that you told just earlier about getting the silver yeah. And not the gold and yeah. being made to cry for that, right? Yeah. So I guess firsthand experience. But what you're saying is that was not unique. And that it seems like most or a lot of people coming to uh, be taught music have a similar experience to that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really interesting that you're able to recognize that and then highlight that and then attempt to uh, acknowledge it and, and work through that with people. That's pretty cool, man. Well, it's something I didn't expect to have happen, but I, I get it. I, I get how they feel. I get feeling crappy when you're playing music. And also when I, I still have problems I have when I'm playing music now, because when you're, when you're playing jazz, for example, say you're improvising, you're basically making up music on the spot over top of like a chord progression or some sort of jam. There's times when the, like the best I'm playing is when that voice, that board of directors, that super ego thing, the people that live in your brain that are like, that's not good. You, you made a mistake there. 
I don't know. When you're like, you know, shut up, people. I got this. And you're like, you need to keep playing. It was when you quiet that voice down, uh, that critical voice. And so I, I get it. And so I'm able to break through to that. And then I'm able to help people learn music. And so I've made my living doing this just on Pender. It's not even through really marketing at all or going off island. It's just solely living on the proceeds of teaching music and working in the music and arts community here on Pender Island. It's pretty cool. I mean, so I didn't, I mean, I did not expect that. I was mowing lawns when I moved here, right? Mm-hmm. I was at the golf course, like, and it was great. It was nice that the golf course hired me because I was able to eke out an existence. Um, and then I got hired and I was the worst carpenter in the history of the carpentry, <laughs> most unskilled labor ever. And I was really grateful to uh, Steve Wright for hiring me and then teaching me and having Kevin Marsden and Chuck, they, they taught me, <laughs> you know, they put up with me and it was really awesome because it was able to let me have my start and uh, keep going and living here, you know, and people finding out that I teach music and then they write a grant and the Ptarmigan Arts Organization as a nonprofit was so, has been so instrumental in keeping me here through get finding work for me as a teacher and then the support of parents and community members. I'm able to make a living here. I'm not rich, but I'm able to make a living through music and it's pretty cool. I did not expect that. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, let's just step away from uh, music a little bit here because uh, just thinking about the time that we have to do this interview, because you d- you just mentioned a number of people that have helped you along the way. And, and of course, the second question that we always touch on on the show is who's yeah. helped you along the way. And this is an opportunity for uh, you to highlight somebody who's helped you or numerous people have helped you along the way. Uh, just And the reason that I like asking this question is because it helps to highlight some of the connections that exist on this island that people may not know that uh, other people are connected sure. with. But who would you like to highlight? I mean, it's got to be everybody uh, that I've... I mean, there's so many people I know on Pender I'm so grateful for. I, that's ridiculous. To, that's a ridiculous question because you're getting me to single out people and it's like every day you're on Pender... Somebody does something nice for you or something happens that that's nice. You didn't expect it. You hadn't seen that guy for months. And then he's covered your coffee at Slow Coast or. Well, what was the last thing that happened that was really nice? What was the last thing you can remember? The last thing that I can remember that was really nice uh, today. Oh, uh, the librarian helped me find a book. I think that's her job, actually. <laughs> I, I think she was just Dude, doing. Dude, she's she not got. paid anything. They're oh, wait, sitting they're volunteers. in there. They're that's volunteers. right. Volunteers. So, she didn't have to do anything. She just been like, "That guy looks confused." <laughs> I don't care. I'm a volunteer. I'm. I'm going to go and chill out now. Okay, so she was watching you. She was. She knew that I couldn't find this book. She okay. just. And plus, it was probably the most exciting thing. There was like a person in the library. You know, th- there's three or four people, but it's not too often you look confused in the Pender Library. You should usually have a mission. I was really giving off the I'm a confused kind of like like doing the, the bobbing of the head around the aisle. So, that, she came and helped me. That's normally how I see you. It's like, it seems like a <laughs> typical way that you, you, you know, like I imagine you wake up like that and go I to do. bed like that. I but bob, yeah. Can I get true. a better example than the oh. librarian helping you? <laughs> well, uh, as someone has done something nice for me. Uh, there's so many people, Chris. That's crazy. Uh, something nice for me on Tinder. Okay, well, this no, is no, no, the, just a second. Well, me, is it, I okay. Let me just fill in some space here yeah. to give you like some time here. But it's interesting what? because you you were saying that everybody has helped you along the way, which is I've I've heard from uh, a number of people, probably more people than not, who have done this interview have said the exact same thing. Is like so many people on this island have given me help, and it's such an amazing thing to hear. 
I don't think that's a typical experience for someone living in a in Toronto, for instance. Let's say. Well, yeah, because on Pender, you sort of have to get along with everyone. It's a really great human experiment to live here. The city, you can just do whatever you want. You can get away with behavior that is not acceptable in the city, without question. And so people are answering that question that way because they get to interact with people. And, you know, when you learn on Pender that if you all of a sudden start being a jerk or being uncooperative, you're going to keep seeing that person all the time. You're going to, it's going to be awkward all the time. So you can't behave that way. I mean, and I know there's some folks on Pender. I mean, it's all like lovey dovey stuff on this podcast for sure about Pender, but there's some people that just avoid businesses or they don't talk to some neighbor because of some feud. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? You have to learn on Pender to, to get along, whether or not you have difference of view. You know, it's uh, it's a community that requires you to look inward to work out through your stuff in order to get along with everybody else. So I think as a result, there's lots of people that are really happy here because they figured it out. They're like, man, I'm on Pender. This place is utopia. It is the most beautiful place in the world. It is without question. And I'm so happy. And I'm going to do I'm going to try and help others now because I've got it made. I bet there's a ton of people like that on Pender. But do you think it's because we live on an island or because there's yeah. something? So yeah, what, we're, what we're cut it? off. The ferry's the only thing. Like, people forget. Like, you know, if you want to get off Pender, you need a boat or the ferry. Sure. Like, it's a, actually a common thing from people who are from the city. They go, you mean when the last ferry stops? Like, how do you feel? Like, when it's like nine o'clock and the ferry leaves. Don't even think You don't even think about it, right? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> but it's, so there is something about being on an island. And uh, we got a good thing going on here. We're in like the heyday of Pender Island right now. Kind of Just, feels like it. It's, feels- it's amazing. Yeah. It's a really got lots of young people. The school has got tons of students. We have a high school now. It's a one class high school. People moving here from the city, bringing their skills and their artistry. Also folks that are you know, retiring, but still continuing wanting to work. So they volunteer everything. There's businesses that are doing really well. Um, there's also... You know, we could figure out a way to make it so there's more of a balanced economy here on Pender, but that's a whole other conversation, uh, which is goes into the politics, which you've avoided in this whole uh, conversation, which I'm incredibly impressed by. You can, we're we're going to get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good time for Pender. It really is. So I, that's why I think your podcasts, I, I really want to go on the record and say like your podcasts are super important because I wish we were able to listen to somebody from 1890 talk about Pander Island, you know, what they would talk about, what their experiences were, you know, this will be great in a hundred years to find out what people were doing here. It's a great record. So thanks for recording all the people's stories. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, it's interesting. I want to give credit to you right now as well, too, Mm. because initially when I started doing this was because I wanted to foster more of a connection between people on Pander, just Mm -hmm. to have a deeper understanding of who that person is you encounter all the time and to sort of get to know more about them and yeah. have more empathy for who they are and just build a tighter circle of understanding within each other on the island. And I wasn't really thinking about the long-term benefits of this until we were talking one day on the disc golf course and you brought it up and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, geez, I wasn't thinking about the historical significance mm-hmm. of this, but now I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for making that point because I think that it's true. I think that for well, the, the long-term uh, implications of this are really important. 
Yeah. Uh, there's, well, there's very little entertainment value. <laughs> so I'm trying to spend it positively. No, it's actually, it's fascinating. I've listened to them all. Gary Goodman, that was my favorite. Uh, he, he omitted a couple stories, like the time he forgot the words to the national anthem uh, at the baseball diamond. I mean, there's, there's some classic interviews that you've done that are awesome and they're going to be listened to a long time from now. So it's great. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, you mentioned politics, so let's get into that because okay. uh, what's been going on in your life with politics? What's been <laughs> so? What's the what's the deal with the politics? <laughs> uh, I was recently acclaimed, along with Deb Morrison, to be North Pender Island's newest trustees. My term starts in November. Okay, so what does this mean? Uh, that means that I will have fruit and vegetables thrown at me and my vehicle for the next four years, potentially, if I make incorrect decisions. Will the fruit or vegetables be rotten or fresh? Uh, it's probably the rotten ones. I P think tenderites don't waste their fruit. Well, but seriously, I mean, the, being a trustee does have a notorious position on Pender because you have to make difficult decisions. You have to decide how land is zoned and utilized. And my jurisdiction, along with Deb's, is on North Pender Island. On South Bender Island, there are two trustees, and there's actually a, a campaign for that. So there's three people that are running there. And it's a really important job because it's part of the Islands Trust. And the Islands Trust was created in the mid-1970s, basically to preserve and protect the island, to make sure that you didn't have complete wild development, which was basically taking place up to the creation of the of the trust. They were like, we're in Magic Lake Estates right now, and you're very, well, it's warming up this basement, a very cold basement though, however. And we're sitting here on this lot that was subdivided, uh, you know, into half acre lots. And there's hundreds of them. And they did this because there wasn't any regulation on them. So there was a lot of pressure on the provincial government at the time to create this government that would basically protect the island from further development. So they made a rule where the lots can be subdivided into 10 acres or had to be subdivided into 10 acres. And then they just tried to do everything they could to recognize that the Gulf Islands were a really special place and to not allow Walmart or Best Buy to set up shop here, right? And so uh, there's 26 trustees elected every four years, and I happen to be one of them from North Pender Island, and they're all represented, and we meet at trust council. And the idea is to, I believe, and I'm going to learn this, uh, the idea is to make ensure that the quality of life and the quality of the environment are protected. At least that's how I interpret to be a trustee is. So that's my job. So I'll be at meetings and I'll be deciding how people present applications on, say they want to make a land zoning change. They want to put in an industrial park. I'll go, okay, what are you doing this for? And along with Deb and, and a, a chair, uh, a three, it'll be a three-person panel. Usually a chair is someone from off-island, so they aren't, aren't seen as a neutral voice. They decide, okay, this is what we're doing, yes or no, kind of based on help from the staff. So I, I found it interesting. I've been going to these meetings since I first moved to Pender. The first thing I did was went, went to an Islands Trust meeting. It was in January. It was the first thing? Yeah, you did? it was like like community thing. I okay. went to a trust meeting. I wanted to see how does the government work here? What is going on here? Because I was fascinated by it because I have a political science background, right? Mm -hmm. And then I got really involved and I started learning about it. And then it worked all the way up to like I was a member of the Advisory Planning Commission. And I got really hip to finding out issues from Penderites about how the island functions because I just found it interesting. Like I was going to the library looking up history books. because It's an interesting place, right? The history of Pender. And so then I found myself in a position where I could run. 
because I thought I'd do a pretty good job of being a person that could at least at the minimum, I know lots of people, I can go and talk to them. I think that's what I will bring to the gig is rather than save it for a big meeting, I'll make an effort to go and talk to the applicants and talk to people to find out as much information as I can, which hopefully will lead to a, a less contentious decision-making process. I, I, I kind of believe in the idea that, you know, meetings and emails kind of really separate people and create a real strong disconnect. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to like hate someone that you know, like, and, and talk about the issue with. Sure. Yeah. Unless it ends in a, you know, yelling match, then you really need the process. But it's rarely going to like that here on Pender. You know, we have a way of working things out. Well. So. I'm really curious to know that when the two trustees are named for the South Pender Island, will there be a tag team championship <laughs> with the North Pender Island trustees, you and Deb against the South <laughs> Island trustees? Yeah. And uh, which island would this occur on? Yeah. Would there be two battles? Like, are you willing to participate in this or not? No. <laughs> All right. Is, well, is if Steve Wright gets elected, there's no way I'm going to battle him. I'd no. lose to that guy. He's no, just all muscle. His forearms his are, forearms are like thighs, tree trunks. So. Absolutely. But, okay, so, like, maybe not necessarily in a political sense, or maybe it's up to you, but what do you want to see improve on Pender Island in the next number of years? Yeah, I got a simple answer for that. And then that's the main reason why I got involved is to prepare for climate change. I mean, the Times colonists just had in May, the month of May was the driest recorded month in the history of the West Coast. And, and the technology exists for our island to become basically off the grid. We could have very little impact on this island if we invested in solar energy, if we invested in rainwater catchment systems, if we invested in more community bus initiatives that got people out of their cars, improve the bike paths on Pender. Like, I mean, I, I was going to get an electric bike. You know, I had an opportunity. I'm like, wait, I don't want to die. <laughs> like, there's some <laughs> roads that are sketchorama, and we need to finish those bike paths to make it, you know, an island that's a healthier island. Is sketchorama a legal term? Or <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a term I'm going to use at all the trust meetings. <laughs> But but on all seriousness, the the situation in the Gulf Islands is such that we are very susceptible to drought. And I'm not a scientist, right? Like I play flugelhorn, but I, but I am friends with scientists who who tell me these things. We either work in the ministries or um, are you know consultants, and they they indicate a, a drying trend in the Gulf Islands, right? So that tells me that we should prepare for that. We're in a rain shadow, you know. When you first come to Pender. The first thing you notice when you go to the toilet is like only flush if it's number uh, one or no, number two. Shoot, I've <laughs> been getting it wrong <laughs> all these years. Leaving <laughs> number two. Well, that's a side story. Um, I lost my train of thought. So make sure you flush on number two, just yeah. as a side point. Um, but, you know, we know that water is a struggle here it, and it, it we have to conserve water or at least invest at the minimum in helping people find ways to afford to get a rainwater catchment system and a solar unit, you know, working on their house. So, and, and that costs a bunch of money yeah. and it's, it's a big thing where I have to fill out forms and go to meetings and blah, blah, blah. But it has, the work has to start now and I'm okay. I'm 36 right now. And I'm like, okay, I'm thinking long-term. If I can help contribute over the course of the next couple of years, whether that is in politics or 
as a result of my role in politics, some other job that or some other community initiative that I'm able to take on to help make this happen, then that's what I'll do. Because that's that's what will keep me up at night if I'm not adhering to that belief system. that That's how I'm going to go to bed and go, you know, I've done everything I can. It was a hard decision. But man, I did everything for Pender, which was to try and plan for climate change, to make the island healthy, to preserve the community. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's impossible to really predict where things are going to be 50 years from now, which is a long period of time for now. To, to even imagine what society reality could look like at the point i think is uh but we can certainly guess we can certainly no we can certainly guess for sure absolutely but i I think i think it's admirable and that you want to affect change for the future and recognizing that there could be some serious changes within how the world is like within a short period of time right and I, i think that's great that you're looking out for the benefit and safety of the people who live on the island and well i'll tell you why because i'm really stoked that Right now, in your very cold basement, if this table collapses on my legs and breaks my leg, there's some ambulance that's going to come. And it's not going to cost me 40 grand or whatever to go and uh, get my legs fixed. Because some person and a couple people, long time ago, they, they sacrificed time with their families. They dealt with criticism. They dealt with the difficulties of being in public office in order to get health care you know, happening. For us. And I'm thankful and grateful every day, not just for healthcare, but all the progressive things that led me to be this privileged position where I can live on Pender Island and teach music, right? I owe it to the next generation, my kids, to do something about it. And because I have an interest in it, I'm like, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. So, you know, maybe it'll be interesting to hear my sound in four years about the experience, but. I'm going in beginning this process with my eyes open because I'm really aware of what I'm getting myself into now more than more than ever. Talking to old older trustees who have been involved in government, talking to people who've served in Ottawa, talking to uh, David Boyd and his experiences in Ottawa. Uh, he's a professor of environmental law talking to various government officials that are saying, well, this is what screwed up or this is what, and and I get it. Like I get what I'm getting myself into, but we got to, we have to start working on it or it's going to not be good news. Like we have to get our act together on climate change. It's just the bottom line. If we're not, it's not looking good. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, it's dark, the news right now. Definitely. It's like, I sometimes read articles. I'm like, holy crap. It scares the hell out of me. I'm like, anyways, Where's Chris? Let's play disc golf. (laughs) May as well get on with things. So I don't know. This is what I'm going to try. And uh, I feel really strongly about what I'm doing and passionate. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move into a different uh, topic of conversation here. Are you ready? So we got music. We got politics. Yeah. What else has uh, Ben really passionate about these days? I'm really passionate about, well, we had this, I had the principal, excuse me, call me, say, Ben, I need a hand with orange t-shirt day. Aboriginal day at the school, which is basically a a day to recognize uh, the history of residential schools and our relationship with First Nations communities uh, in Canada. So the principal asked me, and here, who who am I? Like some random guy on Pender, you know, who's connected to First Nations. But I I actually was really lucky because I was able to connect through the school um, and through the South Pender Historical Society, this initiative that was a youth leadership project that helped us basically take six kids from Pender Island School and six kids from the Sayout 
And they went to school together on a Thursday, one, one Thursday a week and learned about each other's school and learned about their culture. And we went on hiking trips and canoe trips and on every, you know, once a week we would connect. And it was an amazing experience. I got to learn and so much about the island here, actually, as a result. It's totally, completely shifted my way. I view Pender Island. Well, how so? first, first of all, we should be calling it Stais because that's the name that the Sayout are um, uh, one of the four villages in, in Saanich. And they speak the Sinchothan language. And Stais means wind drying salmon is the, the place name of, of where Pender Island is. It's basically the middle of Pender Island. And... Uh, you know, all all this stuff I learned as a result of this experience was, you know, incredible. It, it changed the way I just walk around here when I'm hiking. It made me feel kind of, uh, what's the word, spiritual? Because it made me feel just, I, I had weird dreams, like, through the whole experience. Learning about the history is really intense. I mean, one of the gentlemen that was on the Youth Leadership Project, our elder Willard, he survived a residential school. And I mean, he was there from a residential school from age five to age 18. Then he was in and out of jail and he talks openly about this and he talks about his story of forgiveness. And it's like, I mean, it's super heavy, so heavy. And these kids that were teaching were really unbelievably strong to just sit there and listen to it. And I was uh, really deeply moved from the experience. So when I was asked just last couple of weeks ago to do the orange shirt t-shirt day, I called up Romaine and Willard, who are the people that were part of the project. And they came back to the school and they went and talked to every single student about the First Nations culture, like stories of language, Sinchothan words. And they talked about drumming and Romaine taught them a song and the whole school sang a song together that Romaine taught them. It's called the Journey Song. It was a song that I actually, I taught to the Pender Choir as well. And Willard, he spoke of his experiences as, at the residential school, especially to the older grades who are studying it. And I left that day being like, what? Like, am I like an ambassador? Like, what's going on here? And But I felt like it just, it was such a great day because it felt like here we are finally, because there's basically zero First Nations representation here yeah. on Stais. And here we are finally connecting again. And like Romaine said, you know, how can you begin the reconciliation process if you don't know each other to begin with? And so we're going through the process of getting to know each other and getting to hang out. You know, the kids in that program were doing Instagram shots with the other kids from Pender and it was like normal and cool. And that's what we need more of, more of that stuff. So I found myself unexpectedly passionate about that type of work when I never thought I would be. So it was really cool. That's great. And so when you're yeah. saying you're hiking around the forest and you felt a shift within you that you feel more of a spirituality, uh-huh. you would say, tell me what you mean by that a little bit. Like, how has that changed? Because how was it before and how is it now? You know what it is? Okay. Like, okay. First of all, people should recognize that I'm a very much, uh, what's the word? Uh, agnostic. <laughs> I, I like questioning. I question many things. So, but... I do find when I walk around now, like if I go on a hike, I like jogging up Mount Norman and go to the top of Mount Norman. And I, I guess I see it like the islands now, like it was like 3000 years ago, as opposed to like the buildings and all the roads. I try and visualize it as what it was before we all Europeans came and touched it all. And there's some sort of like calming thing that happens when I think about that. Because you suddenly don't hear the cars and the airplanes that go over and just the touch of humanity on these islands. Because these islands are 
sacred, special place. You know, before the border, the American border, you don't see that either when you're thinking about it 3,000 years ago. And so I guess, is that a spiritual experience? I don't know. I guess I'm just more connected. I'm listening to and understanding the land that I'm from. So, man, this is getting esoteric, man. That's great. But that's, I, like I, I wouldn't say I get like visions like, woo, there's Chris Wakalak, you know, as a wolf. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> it's not weird or anything. It's just. Sure, but I guess what you're saying is just you have more of a uh, awareness or a different awareness totally. when yeah. you're out. In totally open my eyes. Once, yeah. I mean, I'm a privileged white guy, right? So I grew up very lucky, and I'm very aware of that now than I've ever been. Let's put it that way. And that in itself is, I think, a spiritual. I don't know what you call it. A, tr- a change, you know. Like I'm, I'm grateful every friggin' day I'm here on Pender. Would you say that your your work with the First Nations helped you to come to that realization or was it a number of things? I don't know what it was. Like, okay, figure this out then. Here's where the spiritual thing is. I don't know if it's just a series of coincidences or whatever. But the first time I got here, I, I started finding out where's First Nations music. I want to find a First Nations musician and learn about First Nations culture here in music. Because I'd written a master's degree paper on the music of John Jewett, who had studied in a Chalneth music and Nootka Sound. And so I was like, okay, we gotta st- I want to check out First Nations culture here. Couldn't find anybody. So then I kind of wrote this suite of music with the jazz band that talked about the history because I'd read all these history books. And then I wrote a suite for the choir. And then we performed it at these concerts. And I wrote another one for the jazz band. Then I wrote a suite for my doctoral thesis of music ba- based on the history here. And then I, it was like, I was kind of I don't know, like playing tunes, trying to reflect the First Nations time before Europeans came. I wrote a lot of music about that feeling. And then to all of a sudden, out of the blue, get a phone call from the principal who's like, Ben, I want you to be a part of this leadership project with First Nations. It's the first of its kind. Blah, blah, blah. People thought you'd be good at it. I was like, that's weird. But it led me on this path to learning even more about First Nations culture and the the uh, Sandwich people. And it was awesome. It was super interesting. And I'm stoked to see where it goes. So like I've got a concert I'm organizing on the 24th, which is going to be a, a five-member band from the Sayout. They're, their musicians have been together for 20 years. They're going to play 40 minutes of music. And then I'm going to get the jazz band, which I've turned into a wind ensemble, and then the youth orchestra and some Pender musicians to um, perform a suite of music reflecting the history of Pender Island. And we're just going to be in the school. And, you know, I'm trying to, like, keep things going, kind of like sharing cultures and sharing music because that's the kind of best way we can all start hanging out and it all feeling more like we're all working together in this place uh, and respecting the history of it. And respecting the history means respecting the, the land and respecting the environment of this place, too. So we got to get hip to that. So I'm, I'm, that was an unexpected thing that came along. And that's what Pender does. It's just random, unexpected journeys that are really cool and i've just learned to kind of go with the flow yeah i think that if you allow for them they can really happen but you know when you were talking about being at the top of mount norman and then visualizing what things were like in a previous time and having just a different awareness while you're being out in the woods because you can go out in the woods and be pretty disconnected if you choose to be Mm -hmm. or the complete opposite be connected in a way that you would never really expect if you just allow for that to happen. Yeah. And you might have to take some extra steps along the way to get to that place. But I I, I think it's a, a really valuable experience that we have the possibility 
of having when we're out in nature is to have a uh, really intimate, powerful, deep connection with nature. And uh, it's interesting to hear you say like that uh, having the connections with the First Nations community helped to facilitate that for you. Well, yeah. And it, it also shrunk the islands for me a lot. I wanted to get to know the islands way better. So what I did this summer, for example, was I took my little dinghy, my like 11 foot. It's actually my girlfriend's tin boat, but I put my engine on it and I started booting around the islands. Uh, so I did one day where I went up the top of Galliano and then I went to the top of Main Island and then I went up to the top of Saturna and then the top of Pender. And you really start to realize how small the islands are. They're really small and precious. We usually get on a ferry and a car and you're kind of like, okay, here I am on an island. When you see it from like the water to the top, it's something about it that makes it small and, and precious. So I, I dig what you're saying about, at least I think I'm understanding what you're saying about the connection with nature. It's, it's really helped me figure out this place, figure out that reason why I'm compelled to come back here, which is kind of the why your podcast is good, Chris, because it's like, why did you come here? It's a great question. It's, uh, it's something that I'm going to keep asking me while, I'm, while I live here. As long as I live here, which I hope is forever. Yeah. I hope to be buried in that cemetery with everybody else. You know, that's my plan. Be great. Nice. Yeah. Well, we've come uh, full circle there. It's kind of an interesting. Yeah. From way. birth to death. <laughs> well, there's a picture of me in my mom's uh, belly on the spit. And you know, I'm chilling in utero there. And my mom's on the spit just having a sun, sun uh, bathe festival and. If I end up at the Pender Cemetery, that would be the cycle of life, I think, you know. So, that'd be cool. Sure. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for coming in. That's it, eh? Yeah. Anything else you want to say? Anything else you want to uh, end off with here? Yeah, I want to say to people who are listening to this, (laughs) God bless you. Because you've somehow lasted through this whole thing. Listening to me blab on. I want to say that if Chris asks you to do this, you should do it. Because it's a really interesting process to go through. To reflect on why you came here. And it's hard. And, and if you begin to really ask those questions, it's, you open up a lot of stuff. And so, but, but do it and, and don't be scared to, because if you just go on and you're as honest as you can be, it's going to be a great experience. And Chris is a good host, despite the fact that this is like a CIA weird coach thing in this room going on. It's still really great that you're doing this. So that's what I want to say. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks Thanks for coming in. Yeah. (laughs) All right. In honor of that interview, I decided I'd come down to the disc golf course and practice my putting. Not that I need to, because despite what Ben says, when we get together and have games, Ben, unfortunately, is the person who loses most of the time. I think he tends to confuse giving me money with winning somehow, which I think is great. But regardless, (laughs) the disc golf course is located at 37166 Galleon Way in Magic Lake. And it has been the scene for myself and many other people, thousands probably over the years, of a lot of fun. And in honor of something Ben said about people sacrificing time in order to create something better for other people, this beautiful park... And this course that was developed years ago and has been maintained has really been such a pleasure for so many people along the way. And I know that there was a lot of work that went into it. And I plan to do a podcast about this at some point down the road. I have some idea about who I'm going to interview about that. And it's going to be a great one. 
until then, thank you all very much for listening. And Ben, next time we go out and play, I don't think you stand a chance against me. Thanks, everyone. Until next time.